Hi folks, Dick Flax here with episode number 25, Talking Strategy, Making History. Remember, we've been conversing for several sessions now about the meanings of socialism in current scene. And today we have the privilege of talking with two leaders of the Democratic Socialists of America, DSA, David and Christian. It's a fairly lengthy conversation, but I think we explore in depth some of the dilemmas of strategy, some of the ways forward that people in DSA are currently engaged in figuring out. So give it a listen. And here we are with David and Christian uh, from DSA. Thank you so much for making time. Uh, It's a pleasure to meet you, Christian, and also to have David back on, as we were joking before. He's a a friend of the podcast uh, and someone we've looked to to uh, help us sort through contemporary socialist strategy, which is what we're here to talk about today. And I think it's we should just get right into it. But we just wanted to start and maybe start with you, Christian, if you could introduce yourselves to our listeners and uh, a little bit of a bio uh, in terms of how you got uh, involved in socialist politics uh, and DSA specifically or politics generally, whatever the story of you uh, is and how you got here to debate socialist strategy. Awesome. Yes. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. Happy to be here. Hopefully by the end of the episode, I'll be a friend of the podcast. But excellent. Yes. Christian Hernandez. I'm born and raised in Texas, lived in North Texas my entire life. And how I got into politics. That's uh, a lovely little origin story that was really rooted in my background in immigrant rights organizing. Um, I'd been doing that, I think, probably a few years before I just started to realize like, hey, this needs to happen at a faster rate. It felt like putting a Band-Aid on a bullet hole and it just wasn't wasn't going as well, especially, I mean, in the realm of immigration, anyone who uh, has been, you know, fighting for the DREAM Act can tell you it's just like a constant barrage of disappointment. And so I really was looking to sort of figure out how to scale. And I just happened to get an invite to go to Vegas one day because they were looking for bilingual Spanish speakers. And it was for a guy, uh, Bernie Sanders, y'all might know him, (laughs) to go canvas and talk to people, particularly Latinos um, in Las Vegas. And, you know, I was like, sure, that sounds great. I don't know this Bernie guy, but that sounds awesome. And I think just in the course of, of, you know, traversing 100 degree weather (laughs) and talking to a bunch of people, just really seeing one, how Bernie's message resonated, but also for myself, just understanding like, oh, this is, there's better, right? People are thinking beyond just sort of like the local. And so, you know, I just kind of stuck as a Bernie fan and eventually uh, had somebody, you know, ask like, hey, are you interested in leftist politics? I'm like, I mean, I'm a big fan of Bernie. Is that like, in the realm of what you're looking for. And this person was actually one of the uh, initial uh, people who who started the process of developing a DSA chapter in the North Texas area. Um, And so I joined and I joined in a, what I felt was a very old school way at the time. I like filled out a paper application and submitted a check. Um, And yeah, that's how we used to do things, which I like, I'm, (laughs) I'm very old school in that regard. And uh, yeah, by by fall of, of 2016, I was officially a DSA member uh, and very, very shortly after became chair of my chapter for two years, did a lot of 
work around the Dakota Access Pipeline, uh, just because the, you know, the CEO is rooted in Dallas. Um, and then we had a huge paid sick time campaign and some police oversight work, some victories there. And then I was recruited to run for the uh, National Political Committee, which is the political leadership of DSA. And this is now my second term on the NPC and my last. So definitely a very reflective time for me, having spent now almost seven years in, in DSA and seeing both my personal trajectory in the organization, but also just the, the broader trajectory of the organization in the, in the realm of the left and, and the broader political terrain. Awesome. That's like 14 years, at least in socialist years, I think, seven years (laughs) on a board uh, for sure. Yeah, that's all really fascinating. Really look forward to hearing your your thoughts on the organization and how it's changed. Put it in a little context. We used to deal with in a lot of cash, actually, in my day. It was like change and ones (laughs) uh, to get like for dues for the youth section and stuff. So I'm sure now it's all, you know, thought, thought beamed. So, David, who are you? Well, I will first say I also uh, remember bringing my $20 that I probably saved up with my allowance or whatever to to bring it to the DSA National Office to give it to the youth organizer in person. So I remember it was the old, old-fashioned. I didn't even mail it. But hi, so I'm David Dualde. I am calling in from Brooklyn, New York, but I'm a, from the other borough over in Manhattan. Uh, I've been in DSA for, I can't believe it's going to be 20 years. Oh, in a couple of months, I think. Uh, just a couple, because I remember doing it and giving that story. It was probably in July or May or June. Your DSA tenure could vote. I know. Like <laughs> it's, it's, it's really weird. Oh, man, it's going to be able to drink soon. Um, so <laughs> That's right. That's so right. I come from a socialist family. My dad's from Chile. He was part of a student supporting uh, Salvador Allende's government. He was exiled here. My mom was a solidarity activist. Both are active in the trade union movement, um, very DSA friendly and aligned and did some work with DSOC, one of the predecessor organizations we may talk about. But they were not members. Uh, I, But I became a socialist in high school, largely under their influence, and decided to join DSA in college, where I became active in the youth wing, which is now called the Young Democratic Socialists of America, um, where I became friendly with Duraka later when I was the staffer. And I've done... Uh, many things in DSA, I've probably, I've joked, I've almost held like every position, at least I've been in every level possible from YDSA, college chapter, adult chapter, not in every role, but in every level to NPC. And I served a couple of terms on the NPC. And then I got to know Christian when I was hired again by DSA around the launch of the Bernie campaign as their its deputy director. Um, to base out of Washington, D.C., which is to help do some run of the youth programming and do some electoral work. And then I largely was just focused on electoral work after the explosion of DSA that happened in 2016 to 20, especially in 2017, after Trump was inaugurated, which was a totally different organization. (laughs) And so my job, my title never changed, but my job descriptions changed monthly, um, I felt. And I uh, have done I left the staff in 2017. I've uh, done a couple of stayed very active. And today I sit as the chair of the Democratic Social America Fund, which is the C3 sister organization that has two staffers and is doing a lot of interesting work edu- on educational lead to amplify what DSA is doing and also to advance our own independent work around, uh, but very much in the spirit of the democratic socialist agenda around policy and history and so that's what i'm doing 
right now most in my with my DSA. And uh, what what do both of you do for a living at this point? I assume other than DSA. <laughs> Um, what little time that DSA leaves me for my day job, I guess I should say, uh, I work at a construction company. I'm a production administrator, which is just a fancy way of saying I do a lot of paperwork and do a lot of translation, but yeah, I've been doing that for 11 years now. So longer than I've been in DSA. And then I also, you know, do sit on the steering committee of the NPC, uh, which is currently stipend. Um, so that helps. (laughs) This is so much of this conversation is going to be me going, whoa, like science, <laughs> like I stepped into a time warp, alternate reality. Yeah, my aunt actually did exactly that same job. I know how, like, how important it is for getting anything built. Um, and David, what else? Do you, I know you, you have another political job or something. I have done some, I still do some political consulting, uh, sometimes with Duraka, sometimes not. <laughs> uh, but my, my real true day job is I work for the New York City Campaign Finance Board, which is the public funding uh, administration and voter education of the city oh, of wow. New York. And there I'm also a delegate with a small public sector union called Organization Staff Analysts, which is just independent New York only. And so a lot of my labor work on the side is through my union there too. And so it's a great position where I do, where I'm, you know, doing definitely work that's advancing democracy. And I think that um, it fits, fits well with what I, I'm glad to do in my daytime and then at night <laughs> doing this kind of stuff. Our listeners in Scandinavia will find your biography, like especially familiar, even if it's very, you know, unique or uh, exotic to most American listeners that you like work, uh, that you're a second generation socialist, you know, spent from youth to adulthood in the organization and then now works for like the social democratic, you know, education bureaucracy of the city of New York that publicly finances elections. It's like, what? Why wouldn't you do that? Um, (laughs) Yeah. Meanwhile, in Texas, it's like, (laughs) um, and I hope I really, you know, that's, I'm not, I'm teasing, but it's um, really looking forward to to hearing those two different perspectives, which is sort of like different poles of, of American politics or like places where American politics is at both fights, very important, saving what we've won in places like New York, expanding it and then woo, saving, I don't know, civilization, the, the, the 21st century, something like that in Texas. But anyway, I'm, I'm rambling. Do you have anything uh, you want to say before we jump into the questions? Well, I'm kind of moved to mention my um, biography relating to DSA. And that is that I first met Michael Harrington I saw him when I was a student at Brooklyn College in the 50s. He's one of the, he's probably the only Marxist in the whole 50s that got to speak at New York City colleges. And uh, I was at that time, my parents were members of the Communist Party. So I was stunned by this Marxist who hated the Soviet Union. Couldn't quite put it together. But then in Port, he was there, Port Huron, as I was, and we met there and became an enemy of the new left or of SDS. Uh, But then, like 10 years later, my phone rang. It was Michael saying he wanted to reach out to me as one of the veterans of SDS to help him get started with DSOC. He had, you know, he was very much a different, of a different frame of mind than he was in the early 60s. And, um, we kind of embraced uh, intellectually, politically, 
He spoke to several of my classes over the years here, and we had long talks uh, when he would visit out here in Santa Barbara. And so I joined DSOC, been, been there for almost from the beginning, and I loved DSA in the old days because it didn't ask me to do a damn thing at all. I could just pay my dues and, as I used to say, claim I could be a socialist at least Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays every week. I was a socialist alternating with other identities, and it didn't make any demands of me. So I've been that kind of member ever since, but I'm still a member. I just thought I'd mention that because that helps frame some of where we're coming from, maybe. Yeah. It's also, I think, a really good segue into the first question or like thing we'd love you to ruminate on, which is, you know, Dick mentioned Michael Harrington, who's a, been a, was a very influential figure for my thinking, I think for Dick's thinking as well, but, and it would be a terrible disservice to him and to everyone to try to make his work into some kind of dogma or like system or whatever, you know, so I don't want to do that. Um, at the same time, there were like some conclusions that I think he came to towards the end of his life because DSA is, as he said, like a remnant of a remnant that it was like these people, it was founded by people who had failed at so many different things that there were like all these, I think, really useful lessons that were sort of floating around. And two of them in particular seem to have been, and, um, and this is where I could be totally wrong and my perspective just you know, incorrect, but it seems from reading Jacobin, following stuff on the internets and so forth, that there's like a few Harringtonian conclusions you could say that have been kind of dropped or decentered or are, yeah, kind of uh, marginalized within DSA that are, is surprising. And one of the first is like that Harrington did a lot of work finding the socialism in American liberalism in like the better parts of American liberalism and kind of being agnostic about these terms, socialism, uh, social democracy, like good, robust, like the new deal. Right. I mean, just, and not that it, the distinctions meant nothing and not that he couldn't distinguish socialism from liberalism at all. That's a caricature, but just that liberals might come to the same conclusions, especially in the United States, come to some good conclusions that are like worth supporting. And that that's given way a little bit to more like we have to find the socialist argument here that's different than the liberal or even the New Deal or the social democratic. Like I hear people like people social democracy being something that folks distinguishing themselves from as opposed to owning is a new thing for me. And then the second thing is, 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 you know, realignment and sort of thinking, thinking of. DSA's role, this is a big one, I guess, probably, right? But thinking of DSA's role either as like the replacement in a sense or the germ of a replacement for the Democratic Party or thinking of it as part of a coalition that would influence the Democratic Party and move it, et cetera. And yeah, that seems up for grabs <laughs> um, in a sense or something. So talk, is that off base? Is that frame make any sense? Um, is it is it good that those things have been thrown overboard? Is it bad? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, a lot a lot of things to dig into in both of those questions. Well, you know, I mean, I think that sort of the first thing that occurs to me is the fact that in this moment, there is so little democracy in people's lives. And for me, that's sort of like the, the approach that I always try to come at, uh, because I think it's something that like, 
is generally always seen as a positive thing. Um, and particularly in Texas, where, you know, saying just socialism outright is is a very like loaded term. And I definitely don't want to approach, you know, organizing conversations or really just sort of everyday interactions from just like a place of just like, you know, scaring people shitless, even though I make no apologies, nor, um, you know, hide the fact that I am a socialist in Texas. But I think really, really coming in, in a manner that is very clear that democracy is like the end goal. And I think for me, without democracy, there's no socialism. So I think it's an important place to start. But also how little it's actually seen or recognized. I think, you know, in DSA, the political organization, there's always constant conversations about, well, this is undemocratic, this is not democratic. And it's and it sort of becomes somewhat of a like a throwaway term to mean things I don't like. (laughs) But I think the reality is when when I'm talking to people outside of DSA, like, they're just surprised by how much democracy there actually is. So this is something that's like, new and being felt and experienced for the first time for a lot of people in ways that are like challenging in ways that require a lot of struggle (laughs) through it and an understanding that hey like you lose a vote that means you can't just take your ball and go home like we we keep going and so I mean I think at this point too there are very clear and coordinated and intentional attacks on on liberal democracy um, not only all over the country but especially here in Texas where we can't just sort of throw away these concepts or these material issues just because it's not enough just because it's not our vision for what a democratic society looks like and really have to protect what little democracy we do have an experience on on a regular basis. So I think that to me has sort of been like the approach, particularly because I I think one of the biggest things that, you know, put me off of the Democratic Party, put a lot of people that I've talked to in 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 my home state, um, you know, sort of all across the board, mostly people who don't consider themselves political. Um, is this condescension, right? <laughs> this idea that like, I know better than you. And um, because I think that that's largely felt by people with when, you know, they're interacting with their bosses, when they're interacting with folks who have power over them, there's just this like constant lack of agency in the decisions that affect their lives. And so I think for me, always making sure too, that when I'm talking about DSA or talking about socialism and the vision that we have, it's always rooted from a place of like, I don't know better. (laughs) This is something we need to figure out. But I think that we can come to the agreement that this shit sucks how it is here, right? So really always trying to come in from that place of like, what do we agree on? And what can we agree that we deserve more? And that's sometimes even the hardest part. (laughs) It's just getting people to agree that they deserve more. Um, It's a difficult concept for a lot of people. And I think just briefly to touch on the second point around sort of our orientation. I think there's a big difference between where DSA is and where DSA wants to be. I think a lot of the discourse is really like rooted in where we want to be and not necessarily where we are. And while I I tend not to get too involved in the discourse just because it's a lot of work being life's on the NPC. Yeah. <laughs> well, and yes, and life is too short. I don't necessarily see it as a way of moving people in a genuine manner. It's not necessarily conducive to that. But I do think that for me, I always have to approach it from like a place of humility and honesty of like where we are as an organization. And I think at, at this point, uh, no matter how frustrating it can be and no matter how much hope I have that we can um, build, be and build the alternative 
political infrastructure that's necessary to get all the things that we want. Um, I think at this point in time, you know, we still have some ways to go and we still have a lot of questions and a lot of experimentation to do, which is why, you know, for better or worse, um, it's really great to to read about. I think, as you mentioned, you know, there's a, lo a lot of failures and the lessons that come from it. But really, like the the beauty of failure is also that you tried something and that experimentation, I think, is also really important to not forget that, like, people have been trying this for a long time. This is not a new thing that people are trying to do. People have been trying to make the world a better place for, for, for a long time, and they will a long time after we're gone. And so really also trying to approach it from like, what can we learn from this? Um, and how can we approach this in a different way? Excellent. Yeah. Wow. A lot. That was great. David? Yeah. So to piggyback what Christian was saying, what I would begin with is the observation that I and others have had and have coined called the dirty stay. And so, and then I'll work to the Harrington and liberalism part two, but I think this is helpful to understand what I think what Christian is getting at, which I think is really important, which if I put on my old econ 101 hat is like the normative and positive analysis, like the analysis, which I think it's lost in DSA, which is the fancy way of saying that like people don't distinguish between like what we want things to be and what things are. And they, they get, sometimes you're just trying to describe how things are and they get like, Oh, that's what how you want things to be. So dirty stay. That's a problem. Yeah. So <laughs> dirty stay. Yeah, it is. And so dirty stay is very much uh, positive analysis. It's just like how I view, how I and others view, and and our and our caucus yeah. social majority is overall kind of view situation. Which is so it's a play on the term dirty brick, which is DSA's like official st strategy that we're gonna eventually break from the Democrats and create our own party. And it's gonna and it's called dirty because it's not necessarily Gonna, if there's no clean organization, it's like you're going to create these org frameworks that and institutions that eventually can have strength to create some party. And that kind of an example of that in some some ways is like the Labour Party in England breaking off from the Liberal Party. In some, it's not a perfect analogy by any stretch of the imagination. But um, I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to editorial. It's fine. I'm just I'm I'm not saying it's perfect, but I think it's like for if people are looking yeah, yeah. for like what's a historical. You're like, describing the position. Position. I, yeah, I yeah. So the dirty state is what we kind of have noticed, which is that DSA doesn't do anymore, which I've written about extensively. Is like DSA doesn't engage in Democratic Party interwork, intro work. So by that I mean specifically, DSA doesn't promote people running for county committee. DSA doesn't take stances on who's running for the DNC chair, which it did as recently as Keith Ellison in 2017. Like DSA doesn't, it doesn't say don't do that to like, doesn't say the individual members can't do that. It doesn't say people who do SAIU doing that is stupid. It just doesn't do it. It abstains from that, but it doesn't. So it doesn't do any intra-party work, but it also doesn't really, in my opinion, make key steps that would make the dirty break a reality because I don't think what I'll speak, just use the I voice. I don't actually think the dirty break is where the majority of electoral activists to use one constituency in DSA are really at. I think that, so whenever there are pushes to do things, so a concrete example would be at the 2021 convention, so one example I give, the 2020 convention, there's a vote to like, let's find an alternative to Van. So Van is the is the canvassing software that the Democratic National Committee you, uh, works on to that, that that candidates across the country use, including DSA members who are running in the Democratic Party primary. So like, let's find an alternative. And people voted, and this was not like, let's, here's $5 million. It was just like, let's look at an alternative. 
Um, and people voted against that because it was just like, nope, I think the majority of delegates didn't think it was, we were going to realistically do that. And that, and it was viewed as a proxy for like how much you want to do dirty brick or not, because it wasn't going to create the program itself would have cost millions of dollars. So it's like, it becomes a symbolic vote and it gets voted down and there's several instances that'll come up. So you have the situation where it's neither Harrington nor practice <laughs> dirty break. And by that, I mean specific how I, and I, Drock and I have had disagreements about how to define realignment, which I hope will come out here. But like broadly, how I view realignment is like an effort to make the Democratic Party into a small S, small D, social democratic party. And that is through like building a grass top coalition, which could be labor through the through the, the political organizing I was just describing, such as like that our revolution I felt took on for several years of like trying to organize so laden social democrats that are called Bernie Kratz <laughs> into like winning office within the party, then running candidates. Um, and trying to and taking on institutions at multiple levels. Because what I always note is there's no such thing as a democratic party. It's really a brand and has different institutions, uh, forgetting in the state and city party is just like the DNC, the governor's association, the DS, the senatorial committee, these are all legally independent. So in the end, what I, and I'd be curious if Christian agrees with me or not, like, I think she was saying this, but I may have misheard it, is that, so realignment then I think becomes like, I can't think of the fancy word, but it becomes like a, a filler word or a symbolic word just for things that people don't like in DSA, that people don't, in my opinion, actually use the term correctly because I don't think anyone besides the North Star Caucus is really advocating for that strategy. So people say, oh, social majority believes in realignment, even though we don't actually argue with that. We just don't think that like dirty break is like that. We don't think that there's a majority support genuinely for dirty break, at least in people's interest, but we don't mind what we call the party surrogate, which is like, which could be like the working families party could be an example of that, which is like you're building an institution that can train candidates, can do canvases that can like serve the role of like up that a party would, even if it's not officially working families party is both a party and not a party, depending on the state, but DS, it would be like the surrogate party there. So we're very empathetic to that. And I think that there's, and how much is that? And so what I always think about then when I push back on people and it's like one of my pieces that I would encourage people to look at that I wrote in platypus, whatever you think of them, where I really look at like what changed about DSA's electoral strategy and what didn't change and how much is perception, how much is reality. And so I said, really by 15 to 20 years ago, when I joined DSA, DSA might've said it believed in realignment, but it wasn't doing anything practically because of its capacity and just where people are to advance that. So like, so the idea that people say that we've changed DSA is like, well, you really haven't. I mean, well, you're, it's not really doing anything that dramatically in practice different. And that the other thing I would say too, is that where I think the, where it's always, I joke, if there's like the horseshoe theory between me and the ultra left, it's like me and the ultra left are like, well, DSA still runs Democrats. <laughs> it's like, if you look at the vast majority of candidates that DSA is running, they're Democrats. They're people who are like then endorsing other Democrats who aren't socialists. And as those numbers increases, it actually, I think the ultra left is correct. And, but I say in the normative and positive way for me, the normative analysis, this is okay, is like, and I don't mind it, is that it becomes much harder to actually be independent. So I am using the I voice again. I'm much more sympathetic to, I think, what, what is called the junior partner strategy, which is more associated with justice Democrats. I don't think it's a social majority position at all. So I really am just using my position where it's like, did the groups, groups like DSA, justice Democrats at this moment are the smaller part of the Democratic Party sphere. 
and can push the agenda through that way. And can I ask who who labeled it the junior partner? I think Walid Shahid is the one who. But I you, you I wouldn't I don't know I wouldn't speak on. So he's so he's the communications director of Justice Democrats. So it's worth looking into there. So what I end on is like. The BPRA is like a quasi Green New Deal type legislation that DSA was working incredibly hard on New York that got put in the bill, the recent New York State budget. Less than a year ago, when the bill failed, people were saying, oh, how does it feel to to be with the junior partner strategy now? Like, oh, maybe DSA's political strategy is wrong. All those people who are like criticizing us within DSA, like very quiet or celebratory, and it was kind of the BPRA passing as part of the budget vindicated a lot of what Christian and I, and I think ultimately people like Harrington would have also agreed to on some level, which is like, even if DSA didn't North catchy Holesville, the governor, we understood that our electeds had to, and having her being governor was key versus Zeldin, who was a Trump, <laughs> like, a Trump person who would have vetoed any budget that running a primary against a big opponent, even though the person, the DSA person lost, the opponent of this legislation let it go. You know, it's the classic thing of like, sometimes you lose, but you win. Uh, you may lose the election, but you win the legislation. And that the, the lobbying and social pressure work all came together to get something, even if it wasn't a standalone bill. And it's like, so I think a big distinction, and Christian will probably know the right terms, but it's like, we social majority would not don't think doesn't think it's a problem if our electors endorse Cassie Holschel. We're not saying we don't think DSA should endorse Cassie Holschel, who's the governor, but we where other people would say no, they shouldn't endorse them. In fact, they should be critical. And I and I just don't think that's the political reality that we can pass. We can't pass our program if she's not governor. I mean, this is objectively true, but we also like and so I think that's the one of the contradictions DSA has to figure out that you're getting at where like people that there is a tension there that would not have existed the old DSA where people are like fighting that out. But, and it's interesting to see. And I think these lat this legislation too alone is like, will change the dynamics of that debate, I think at the convention. Yeah. I mean, I, I think to David's point, I think one of the, the main things that, really, uh, I mean, a lot of the reason that folks, uh, uh, both of David and I are in socialist majority, and a lot of the reason I think that we're, we're bound there is because there is this recognition of like, what's possible and what we want to achieve, and like where that fits on the timeline. So while it's great that we're getting people elected, that we're, we're looking at, at ways to expand and build the bench in certain parts, whether that's New York, whether that's Chicago, whether that's you know, in Massachusetts, the reality is we're just now starting to hit the tip of the iceberg when it comes to socialist governance and like what that actually means. Um, and I think that's that's sort of a lot of what uh, some of these tensions and contradictions entail is that like, yeah, you can you can um, sit here and say, I'm going to have the most perfect positions as this like one city council person uh, on council. But the reality is it takes five people to put something on the agenda here locally in Dallas. If you're completely rigid, unable to actually make any inroads with anybody else on council who more than likely is not a socialist, well, then you're fucked. It doesn't matter if you're a socialist. You, in practice, cannot be because you can't get anything done. And so I think that as we're navigating like how we actually get things done, how we actually win our demands, um, I think we're going to start contending with the reality of what level of power it takes to actually achieve the things that we want to do. And I think, you know, 
further down the line. Like that, that would be the ideal, but how do we get there? Which would be the ideal down the line? So I think, I mean, down the line, we'd have the, we'd have the power to hold, say, our electeds to align because we'd have, we'd have the ability to do that, whether it's through a broad base that is able to like sort of move the masses into this position, but also that we have both the infrastructure, the resources and the capacity to get, you know, folks elected at the federal level, for instance. I think that's a little astounding to me how much, you know, the federal level discourse is constantly, you know, on Twitter, given that so few of our electeds are actually uh, at the federal level, and that largely, these are not wins that we ever did by ourselves, like we were part of a coalition to get these folks elected. And while it's great that they're DSA members, they also, you know, are, um, are accountable to, to other groups and, and recognize that other groups had a hand in their victory. Um, and so I think in the interim, uh, it's, it's really important that we like contend with sort of the mushy middle, like what's, what do we, how do we get to that step? And I think some arguments on the negative end come like kind of come back to like, well, it didn't work. So this is actually a dead end or uh, to the like, oh, well, it's not really worth doing this because it's going to take forever. And I think sometimes too many of the political arguments or debates around strategy are really rooted in this impatience that's like obviously fueled by the fact that we're we're at the intersection of so many crises and it's it the urgency that's constantly being felt and like fueled also by the media of just like every every day you see something new and it's i understand i uh, completely understand why people get frustrated that we're not where we need to be but it doesn't make it any more of a reality by Speaking from in that place, we have to stay rooted in where we are now and the conditions that we have to contend with. I'm just going to add one minute thing because I realized what she said was really important about the federal people getting elected. And I didn't address that in the first thing about your question about liberals. And I think there's one thing that we all know intellectually, but we don't sometimes forget to mention in the difference between Harrington and now is that people identify. And I, this, came, this hit me a few months ago when I was talking to a younger comrade where I was giving the line that. And I feel like I grew up within DSA, which is like, you know, we want to reach out to these millions of liberals. And he or she responded, it's this woman, so I'm overtired. She responded, but, but there's millions of socialists. And I was like, what are you talking about? And then I realized from her perspective, if you look at polling, that's true. It's like there are millions of people in the United States who broadly identify with socialists, whether in DSA or not. So, and it's a, it was like, a, it was like one of those like moments like, oh yeah, like, when I was younger, there weren't millions of people who identified as social. So she's, and I realized that those are probably, we were talking about the same people, in my opinion. It was like the same kind of like people who would broadly be identified to a program. But for her, it's like, those are socialists now, even if they think public parks are socialism. And for me, those are liberals because they think public parks are socialism. But aren't there still a lot more people who, you know, support public parks, but are not don't call themselves socialists. I, I think like, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's not true, <laughs> but I'm saying, but I think it's an interesting point that you could yeah. have. I don't think she, I think she's correct. She has her truth, her truth. And her truth is different than the truth from that. At least I'm not going to speak for Christian, but the three gentlemen on this call, when we were politicized, were true. Well, well, be careful, be careful. Cause when Dick was politicized, like revolution looked like it was in the air. I mean, this is what's nice about this. Yeah. Podcast, I, but I think like, if you did, a, I, I'm know. sure Gallup polls would not show that. So I still think that we should reach out. So liberal left groups, I personally think that's a key part. I think DS, that's where I want DS to be. I think broadly, social majority and the politics Christian and I push are more coalition, popular front, you know, in its form that would be today. 
And I think, but I do think that's a genuine things that would have been uncontroversial when I first joined are, are now in debate. And I don't think we're, I think that's the, the fact here, but I also just want to acknowledge that interesting conversation I had with a younger comrade, because it's all, it's not just that people are sectarian. I think their view of how the world works is very different for very real reasons that I think as we get older, we forget <laughs> things have changed. Things have changed. Yeah. Yeah. So very good corrective always <laughs> that we're, yeah, we don't know everything. Uh, Dick. Yeah, there's a, a number of thoughts buzzing through my head because of the great stuff that's being said. One thing I wanted to share is my feeling uh, that the six biggest success of DSA, in fact, has been to identify and and run and support people who call themselves socialists and been successful in the polit in the electoral politics sphere. That's had a big impact as Bernie Sanders started that, uh, the, the amount of popular support that people can get with that label, uh, in spite of that label or because of that label, both um, are remarkable. Uh, and uh, that in itself uh, signifies a shift, especially, I think, in, uh, among young people and uh, various parts of the, of the population that are most precarious, most depressed, uh, who participate in the voting process. And uh, I, I, I think that to think that that's not working or that those people who are elected are supposed to follow a line, uh, neither of those, to me, seem like the right way to look at this. And I like what uh, Christian was saying about in practical world of governing, and participating in governing, there's got to be alliances, there's got to be coalitions, there's got to be common ground found with people who don't necessarily share the label. So sharing the label. So the labeling has been making me uncomfortable for decades. My experience, to be very simple about it, is that ideology doesn't predict what's in people's hearts or what they're likely to do in their action, number one. Number two, most Americans don't know what the words liberal or socialist mean. Majority of Americans in surveys call themselves conservative. Uh, but I think those who've studied that say well, what they people mean by conservative is the family. They want to they want to have families. They believe in family life or something like that. That's their one of their values, not about who owns the means of production or or other measures. And it's remarkable how contradictory most people are in their attitudes toward this versus that, and how many different ideologies float around in people's heads. Uh, and that's, to me, a starting point of thinking, what, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to convert people to be calling themselves socialists? Or are we trying to get movements for full democracy that require going past capitalism, going toward collective forms of, of ownership and of, and of, of decision-making throughout the society. Uh, it's, it's not bad if people who are socialists say, look, we, we have socialism already. We have parks, public parks. We don't charge people money on a Sunday to walk through beautiful spaces, valuable land. We have libraries, we have public education, on and on. These are things that people already value because they're common good. They're common part of the common good. Uh, I think that's happening in the area of housing now. The 
they're so obvious that capitalist forms cannot commodity treatment of housing as commodity can't give people the the opportunity to have a decent home. It's reached that point of, I think, glaring obviousness in many parts of the country. So people are talking about social housing and social housing is a socialist term. It means housing built for people's needs, not, not for profit. Bills in our legislature now introduced this year that I would have not predicted last year to support social housing. And not only in the legislature, here in our communities, too, people are discussing this. That, to me, is more exciting than whether people call themselves socialists. But don't you think the uptick in people calling themselves socialists and the uptick in people having those conversations are related? That's right. And and that and if people want to... I, I'm more on so- the, yes, we have to have a socialist organization and conversation. I'm not, I'm not against... I'm not, just I'm to, not ta- I'm, just to wait, clue wait, wait, our wait, guests wait. in. I'm just cluing our guests in. Yeah, our no, 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 I'm, I'm not, I, yeah, no, I mean, I'm not against having socialist organization. The question is, what is it for? I'm, we're not going to answer that today, but I'm really trying to learn what DSA people are thinking uh for thinking they're about part partly in strategy and partly social to me talking about socialism is a job of education and enabling people to see beyond what they what they see in their ordinary lives to be possible for a society to have and um i'm i'm really in you know i hope that's the discussion include is there in dsa maybe i'll ask that when we push that as a question Two questions related to what I just said. One, how much discussion is there in DSA about the the nature of what what a socialist society means, what it would look like? And secondly, when we say we want a party of our own or a party that, um, what are we talking about? What kind of a, what would that look like? I like to, I've been saying on the podcast we ought to fight for the Democratic Party to be a people's party. Yeah, I mean, I have I have a few thoughts. Uh, a lot of it, I think, is also something I learned pretty early on in my tenure as chair of my chapter. Back when we were still printing out lists, texting people manually, didn't have the fancy spokes that we do now. Yeah, but those, those were the trenches, I guess. But um One thing that was really fascinating to me, particularly when, um, you know, we were doing the DSA for Bernie independent expenditure campaign and like, we're looking at like, oh, this will be easy. We have a list of 500 people who have at some point in the last few years joined DSA, like a lot of people, even if they're like, you know, however hardcore they are now, like supported Bernie, this will be like piece of cake. Like we're going to just get high response rates. It'll be great. And (laughs) we had a number of people who texted me back who were like, I'm supporting Trump. Had a number of people who texted me back saying, actually, Mayor Pete sounds really great. There was, it was just like, and people, people like didn't believe me. I literally had to like take a screenshot from my phone to be like, no, this has actually happened. Um, Because people like, there's a a huge fluidity of identity. And I think all of us could probably uh, attest to having one person in our lives who maybe was like a hardcore Bernie in, you know, 2016. And now is like a, you know, uh, evangelical Christian, like uh, just, you know. Like conspiracist type. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, I think, you know, uh, the right traffics in fear and at a place where conspiracy is is a natural consequence of that. And 
So I think, I think one, obviously, yes, like the definitions, the shared definitions of what these words mean are sort of constantly being defined. They're constantly also defined by our conditions and like what's actually possible because what none of us here, I would imagine, would have anticipated a, a pandemic that we had to contend with that that's like was not on anyone's bingo card. And I think that like changed a lot of things. It changed a lot of the ways that we organized. It changed a lot of what we felt like was possible in, in those moments. And so I do feel like there is quite a bit of discussion about like what we want to see or what we want to be as an organization, but I think less discussion of how we get there, less discussion of like what our responsibility is for our size. I think that's one thing I always try to frame is like, yeah, it's great being a huge organization. It's a huge flex. It's a, you know, awesome thing to say, but it's also responsibility because one of the biggest problems that we're facing at this moment in time is disorganization. That's one thing that the right is doing really, really well. They're so organized in what they have to do because destruction I think is is easier than than creation than building things and we have you know a, a higher a steeper hill to climb a bigger bigger mountain to move but I think really for me the main thing is knowing that if disorganization is the biggest problem that we face to getting the demands that we want then we need organization in order to do things that we want and we need an organization that has a mass character because the demands that we're fighting for are bold. They're like often not, not experienced by people and they require this like massive imagination. So I think it's also a vehicle of, of possibility of what's out there. Yeah. I, I remember somebody named Duraka <laughs> when I was a youth organizer. Oof, that guy. I know. Uh, I wonder what he's up to. Uh, saying something, Dick, that always stuck with me and that I still believe to this day, which is like the role of DSA is not to create socialism per se, but it's to create more socialists. And that I do feel that that is kind of lost sometimes because we get so sometimes defensive or visionary, which are both good things and bad things at different times. But that there is actually, and I think it's why friends Fox Poon, if you asked her, she's not like, the most ideological, she's an ideological person, but she's not like the most like sectarian person, but she, even she likes DSA. She's like, you need good organizers to do these social movement work, even if she's more spontaneous. And I think, so if you look at those different kind of takes, I think that that's why I stuck with DSA was that, you know, I think it's been a really good place to get a political education, to get a vision. And I noticed that more and more with like, as DSA has gotten bigger, I agree with probably even harder on DSA, maybe because I'm more emotional. It's been a longer time, but I don't think Christian is about the responsibility. I think there's been some serious questionable moments about abdication of responsibility for an organization of its size. But that said, like you have these moments where you see these chapters really creating good organizers who are learning how to connect the dots and be part, part of coalitions and also pushing in principle. And I think there's a value in socialists because socialists will be a little that much more not willing to compromise and can be the left flank for other sometimes ideally it was like you get some more moderate legislation because there's a left flank and i will emphasize what dick you're reminding me that i haven't self-promoted enough yet i mean the dsa fund has been doing this how we win series which is a, a series that we're going to have a conference uh in june uh with dozens of elected officials and their staff who are socialists in dc to talk about and share public policy that they've done and that we and so we've done three events where we had that's a, awesome where I think, yeah i'm really excited <laughs> we've had chapter leaders a community or local group and an elected official usually and usually more than the usually like four or five of those type of people 
Just can you say the dates on that, just in oh, case this actually comes out before it? Uh, June sixteenth to seventeenth. Um, so we've Excellent. had three where people share both their successes and failures in implementing policy around like workers' rights, housing, and just building in general legislative caucuses in in throughout the country. And I think that's like that has been a fascinating take where you see like what is the role of socialists there? Sometimes it's to push the edge sometimes it's to actually be the the the, the coalition that the, the the to start a new coalition it just varies and so i don't think but i think that what we would all agree here is that it doesn't it all isn't only just dsa and that i don't view dsa as like the only organization that matters i don't think like that it's dsa's allies are just the people, other socialist organizations but i still have never been i still remain like totally convinced that there's a role for an organized socialist organization and i don't necessarily agree with you dick that it's like you know, and I, I find personally, I've become less and less interested in like what the inner workings of the Democratic Party. I think is a big difference between like Duraka and myself. But I still think that there is this very important role for DSA, and that's why DSA is still worth fighting for, even if it drives me crazy. <laughs> and I can only imagine how. And I do a lot less in Christian lists, so I can only imagine. I want to make sure that you have a chance to explain to the listeners the caucus system a little bit, because that's something that wasn't a thing when I was involved, I mean, uh, uh, ideological caucus, like factional caucuses, we had identity-based caucuses or, e or interest group. But actually, I want you to address something else before you do that. Okay. This question keeps coming up, and it's a good one, of what is DSA for? Like, what is it supposed to do? In a different context, you have a political party or a union as the sort of purveyors, the the agents of building socialism or moving the socialist movement or housing a socialist movement. And here in the United States, you know, we're not organized. Our, our trade unions aren't socialist and, you know, we don't have a socialist political party that wins elections. So, so then what does a socialist organization do? And let me be a little provocative in saying that everything that both of you are saying is like my language and, you know, like the strategic approach, the things you're talking about balancing, all of it make a lot of sense. but the except up to talking about this sort of like dirty stay versus dirty break versus realignment and a kind of agnosticism about it. It sounds, it reminds me a lot about of the one China policy and bear with me there, but it's like everyone agrees, right? China agrees and Taiwan half the time agrees and the United States agrees. Everybody agrees. There's only one China right now. Uh, it's divided, but there's only one seat in the UN and one China. And right now the people's Republic has the seat before Taiwan had it or the, the Republic did, but like you can't disrupt that consensus to agree to a thing that is in fact, not true. And this is like why younger Taiwanese folks are voting for independence parties. And so, because it's like, it's not, it's not true. We're separate countries. We should just be separate countries. And it feels the same way when we get, stuck in these conversations about like, well, maybe someday there'll be an independent party of the left that we'll be part of. And then that just sort of like hangs there. Why be agnostic about that? Like, it seems to me very, very clear that it's not going to be. And that was like the refreshing thing about Harringtonism was just being like, it's not going to happen. We're not going to have a, you know, third party of the left. We're not going to have a socialist party in the United States. And also anyway, look at the socialist parties that exist. Like there are no cup of tea right now, or there are no like great shakes right now. 
And and the the last piece of that to clarify what I think is the disagreement between David and I about um, realignment is actually not. I don't disagree with his definition of what realignment is now. Like the realignment project now is to move the Democratic Party to the left on you know, core economic justice questions to make it more social democratic. But it started when Harrington was talking about it, when it started, the Democratic Party was half fascist. It was half a Southern party of white supremacy. And it had a whole bunch of like weirdos and extremist anti-communists and like all kinds of lunatics. And the realignment project was to get rid of those people get the liberals uh, who were Republicans in the North together and, and make the parties a left, right party. And it happened. I mean, it, it's like one of the biggest, most important shifts in American politics. The parties are now aligned left to right. You know, while we're mad that the Democrats are too centrist, most of the country is, are, is like pissed off that the parties are too stratified, too polarized. And it was work by activists real people on the ground that like made that realignment happen. It wasn't just, it didn't just happen naturally it happened because people did work. So like we have, we would have to do work and have strategy and do work to move the party in a, a direction now, but like half of that job, which was a big part of it. I mean, it was the party of segregation. Now it's the party of liberal milk toast integrationism, but that was, there's blood for that fight. Like people died to do that. So anyway, my point being that I feel like realignment gets a bad rap because it seems to describe some kind of like force of nature, like, oh, hey, it hasn't happened. Like the Democrats aren't socialists, so it failed. And that's just weird. And then I will be self-critical and say that I understand that like the realignment position has never had any juice, like activism or strategy behind it since the 80s within DSA. It didn't when I was there. David's absolutely right about that. Um like that was kind of our consensus, but we didn't do anything. But what I think is interesting, David, about what you said is that I actually think the reason we didn't do much on it was a similar frozen consensus or stalemate. Even if the, 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 um, the numbers were different, there was always a minority within the organization that was like, oh no, we can never be anywhere near the Democrats. I mean, the, in terms of the celebrities you had, um, Barbara Ehrenreich, um, Cornell West was always like weird and waffly on that. He'd sort of change his mind about it. But then in the grassroots, there were just like always a minority, but enough to just block us doing anything. That was definitely true in YDS. Every time we tried to be like, we now have a strategy in the college Democrats, it would fail because people would just be like, that's icky. So I feel like we've, we've been in treading water actually for decades and nothing followed up the theoretical articulation of realignment with an actual socialist engagement in it. Okay. So those are my two, two rants and I'm interested in hearing you disprove me or. So I would push back beginning here, which is that I think you see where I agree with. So let's start with the, the, the quasi consensus slash, which I think the better word is like stalemate or impasse um, right now. So the reason why I, am more agnostic is that I have come to the conclusion that one, objectively, DSA members aren't that interested in doing this Democratic Party work. I've made arguments and where it could be effective. People don't interested. So there's a point where like I'm like, you know, if people aren't going to do it, they're not going to do it. 
So it's like, why am I going to stress out? Two is that I think, which is like not my unique observation, but I feel is always lost in these, whether it's people being like too rosy about the realignment or just being cynical or sectarian. Democratic Party is a new, is many institutions. We could like run county committees in New York and that still won't change the D triple C messing up, uh, you know, messing things up and like funding the wrong races in New York state. And so the Republicans still win the house, which is, you know, I, I'm just giving an example, even though I understand it was more, there was an issue of ger- how things were gerrymandered, but I'm just giving, it's like, you could do all this hard work and it still doesn't change certain dynamics and it becomes, and there's only so many resources. And that the third thing, which I always point out to the people pushing like during break or clean bank or certain things is like, I think like there's, I point out two things. One is like apropos of my job that I mentioned earlier, but it's like not a hundred percent related, but it's definitely adjacent. If you truly wanted that stuff, you should be pushing reforms that make it possible that DSA becoming a party surrogate is the like hundredth most important thing versus like having proportional representation in New York city. Again, systems create parties. It's like where I disagree. I reviewed Kim Moody's book and I just like, he just, he ultimately it's still his book about breaking impasse is like, there's just a political will lack there. And I'm like, no, I agree. I used to think, for example, let's go, I always like giving more concrete examples. I used to think, why don't we run socialist candidates, explicitly socialist candidates in blue states? I mean, in blue cities. And I wrote an article in Jacobin. And I just, and I, real worlds have changed my mind. And we look at the, the example I give in the article is Jabari Brisport ran as a Green, a DSA member, DSA spent, all this time and staff, not staff, but like all this volunteer time getting Javari Brisbane a socialist line. In addition to being green, they gave, because it's New York State, they got him. And they got like 700 votes on that versus like the thousands he got on the Green Party line alone. Because like, and it was because they, and the people said it was just confusing after all their work to tell voters that, no, don't vote for him on the Green, vote for him on the socialist. They're like, what are you talking about? And it's just like the amount of effort for, what you gain. And then Jabari ended up just running in the Democratic primary three years later and winning. I mean, he did a great job as a Green. He did the most, and I'm, he got 29% of the vote. I mean, it was huge for like a third party candidate. But did he do anything he couldn't have done as a Democrat? And then, and then he ends up winning an open seat, to, you know, and he's been reelected overwhelmingly. So it's like those are the stories where it's like, it, the, it, they just like the amount of effort it takes to do you have to change the system if you want. And, and so I think, and then I think like, if we are going to move to a multi-party system, it's probably not to be uh, apocalyptic, but it's probably some constitutional crisis that none of us can anticipate that would change. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, that's why I'm, and so like, how do you plan for, so like the counter argument that every people says, oh, we should prepare for that. I'm like, and I'm, and I'm like, well, if there's a constitutional crisis, I think we have bigger problems than like, than like, it just uh, starts uh, to feel like theology at a point. Yeah. So it's like, we always have to be waiting for this thing that's going to happen. I don't know. A Christian. No, you're, you're fine. I mean, I, I think that's the reality is that I found a lot of folks that are not in DSA, um, who often sort of look down on DSA as, as too, you know, dim so sure or whatever they want to call it are often like spend a lot of time waiting for like the perfect conditions. And it's like, okay, but you know, we're out here, things are still happening, you know, they're, they're not going to stop just because you're waiting for this like perfect storm of things to happen in order to validate whatever your idea is of like what the perfect answer is to the to the questions uh, that we're dealing with. And, and I mean, for me, the reality is like, 
we, we need to act now because of all of these things. And the reality is also that like a lot of these things don't mean anything to the average person who's like, I'm just trying to feed my family. I'm just, you know, like these are really, really convoluted structures to people. Like I think even a lot of folks in DSA don't have a thorough sense of like just how the Democratic Party operates, like what the infrastructure actually looks like. And, uh, and no, also why because it Nobody looks- does. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Well, fair. But I mean, like the, but still, and then what I've maintained though is that like, it, I mean, we can- sit here and criticize the democratic party till we're blue in the face. The reality is like people are still waiting in line for hours to vote for this party. Right. Like there is still that, like that sense of like, well, this is what we need to do. This like duty and obligation. So I don't think we can just be immediately dismissive of like, because we want something more that we, that we think that that's somehow going to be a convincing enough argument because at the end of the day, whether people hate it or not, there is a degree of trust that has been built in, whether it's because like it's familiar, whether it's because they have like very rooted bases in, in different constituencies or in other structures like churches or, 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 you know, even democratic clubs, whatever the case might be. And those are the people who are turning out to vote, right? <laughs> like those are, those are the people that are, that are like really anchoring them in that way. And so, are not the fascists in their towns. It's like the people that are in their town in North Texas and are like not awful are Democrat are like, oh, I guess I'll be a Democrat. Like Those are our peeps. I mean, yeah, that's that's literally like the way to be like, I I promise I'm not awful. I'm a Democrat sort of thing. And at this point, I get it. I understand like the skepticism. I understand this this idea that like, you know, we could just do it this but better in a lot of ways. And I think it's it's a little limiting because I think the reality is that like, we don't know, <laughs> we don't, we don't, we, we can, uh, we can certainly plan, but I, I think like these big questions are frankly bigger than DSA. We're such a small mm-hmm. part of not only like the US, but the world. I think that's the other thing that I'm like starting to think a little bit more as I develop more relationships with comrades from all over the, all over the world is mm-hmm. like, we're, you know, we're fighting the fight here, they're fighting the fight there, but like, how are we on the same terrain? And like, are our fights actually sort of moving in the same direction or not? And how do they affect each other? How can we help each other out? And I, I mean, again, I leave myself often with more questions than answers. And I definitely don't feel like I'm, I'm trying to be prescriptive in any sense, because I think for me right now, good leadership requires a lot of curiosity about what we can what we can achieve, what we can do, and also what's going to work. And I think particularly in the international sense, because for as much people want to sort of dismiss our federal electeds, they've given us a lot of, maybe for lack of a better word, clout (laughs) with international parties. Um, People are taking DSA seriously because uh, they see what we've been able to achieve both for our size and in the period of time, um, since a lot of, you know, folks sort of see the 2016 as sort of a rebirth of DSA. Um, And I think it's important that that's, again, coming back to like, it's a responsibility of like, what to to David's point, like, yes, we need to create more socialists. And that's ultimately what, as organizers, what we should be doing. Um, And obviously, a socialist should be doing that in that realm as well. But when it comes to finding our place in sort of this like international sphere and like what it means being particularly in the U S where <laughs> anything, you know, sort of the, the, the default is like, why is this fucked up? Well, 
the U.S., right? <laughs> it, it, it also creates sort of a, an additional urgency of like having to take this seriously, because if we if we're not successful in the projects of what we're trying to do here, like everywhere else is going to feel the impact of the things that we're not we're unable to do or unwilling to do. So I think at a certain point, we also I mean, I think we could either focus on the places where we're sort of at, a, at an impasse, as, as David was saying, or we can figure out how to move without necessarily sometimes answering these questions, but always knowing that these questions are, are still lingering and still still need to be resolved, but maybe not at this point. Very, uh, very insightful things that Christian was just saying, and it made me reinforce the belief, what she was saying, that I've had maybe because, uh, partly because I'm a sociologist and it's one of the principles, I think, subtexts of sociology. What am I talking about? Organizations are limited vehicles for any kind of organization for achieving their own goals, let alone the the hopes of the people who are part of it. Organizations have their own contradictions, and one of them, I, and I really wanted to wonder about TSA, what I observed in SDS development in the 60s, uh, what I learned from studying the history of uh, old left or parties. There are kind of two types of members to make it really simple. One is are people who find their membership uh, a, a source of motivation, uh, of support, of enlightenment and education, so they can work in the real world uh, for change and be committed and courageous in the real world. There's another type, kind of member whose politics is all internal to the organization, who cares more about uh, fighting within the organization for whatever it is to get, uh, gaining power within the organization. And that, to me, is a big contradiction in these organizations. It's uh, something that I, I would think should be discussed is building the organization can be important, but if that's the goal of your politics, building the organization, you're not really building the movement for change. You're building uh, uh, building an organization. And I'm just wondering whether that rings, whether that what I just said resonates with experience that, that you have. It, it's not that everybody has to be a organizer in the field to be a valid, full-fledged, committed member, but uh, having their eyes on the real world rather than simply uh, winning points within within an organization or for yourself or your caucus uh, seems to me a critical thing. In the case of, I've studied a lot of um, interviewing former Communist Party members, and one theme that comes up to a lot of the people that I've known from that history is the further away they were from the organization's leadership in terms of the sort of bureaucracy of the organization, the more they could be creative organizers in the real world. If they followed the party line, because that was supposed to be the right kind of discipline, they were often isolated and in trouble in the real world. So, But there were people who wanted to have that party line and really enforce it and make it into, you know, the absolute test of party party commitment. Um, that's an extreme case, but it's somewhat like what I'm talking about as a more general point. So maybe that's something that you want to um, comment about, if that if that rings true or or what. 
and maybe explain the caucuses a little bit like as part of that yeah i can i can let david explain the caucuses but i will say one thing especially because this is honestly uh fueling my my um my commitment to not running for say a third term, despite being asked is, you know, I, I, for me, one of the things that is the most motivating, no matter how difficult it is, particularly in a state like Texas, is doing the, the local organizing work that then, you know, can, can be both a source of inspiration, frustration, or lessons for other chapters in Texas or for other places in, in DSA and, and really missing a lot of that connection of like talking to people who don't already agree with me of, um, um, you know, trying to figure out new ways of, of interacting with each other and finding some of these solutions. So both like on a personal level, but also in a political sense, like these are these are things that are crucial and uh, why I would encourage, you know, anybody in the organization to take breaks, some rest from DSA, because I think it's important that we're rooted in, in like everything outside of DSA uh, for the sake of DSA. Because I, I do think that then there is a tendency, and I think a lot of this is frankly fueled by the caucus infrastructure, and largely because it's an unofficial one, right? That's, there's no officially recognized caucuses outside of like a couple of um, identity-based caucuses. And yeah, I think like it's really easy. I mean, I wouldn't say easy in a, in a traditional sense, but it's like easier, right, to win inside DSA than it is to win outside of DSA. Um, and I think that can be motivating for people to be like, well, you know, I can do this. And so to me, I'm, I've, I've started to sort of like, even within caucuses, sort of like framing whether people that I interact with in, in the organization are either organizers or disorganizers. And it's helped me move a little bit beyond sort of like the caucus lines, because I think that matters. It matters how you work with people. It matters like regardless of your ideology, if you follow through on your commitments. And I think also just stick to your point, I, I'm moving away also from this concept of paper membership, because for a lot of people, like that's what they can do, right? They can pay their monthly dues or their annual dues to DSA. And that's not nothing. There's a huge political, uh, the dues are a political in nature. And the fact that DSA is solely funded by member dues is super important. So I also think like, we have to be able to reimagine ways that people can be members of an organization that doesn't require them. And I say this as someone who spends like 30 hours a week on DSA, that does not require 30, 30 hours a week on DSA, but involves more people doing less individually so that we can do more together. I think that's super important, but I'll, I'll pass it to David for the When you the figure that last <laughs> piece out, when you figure that last piece out, please let me know because <laughs> for all of my clients, that's a huge issue too. And any democratic participatory organization is like all or nothing. And that's, that's yeah. just doesn't work with real people. Very important. David. So I think one thing we haven't talked about that I was one to mention is the left outside of DSA. And I'm going to answer the question, but there's also this new formations around um, podcasters and people. And I think they're the classic example that, we Christian and I were most affected by, I think was like this force the vote push, which was this idea in 2020 that the, that the, the squad and congressional and maybe congressional progress, but at least the squad could get these concessions from Nancy Pelosi in exchange for holding their vote, which for a variety of reasons, I don't think uh, the Democrats big D can do like the Republicans did to McCarthy. I just think the bases have different expectations, but what I'll say, that's where people go who don't join DSA, end up. 
because they take this political with the worldview who have like that goes from being like Bernie's great, but it just takes and they don't go right wing, but they take this like anti-establishment view. And then I noticed that people in DSA did not support that because even the most ultra people and the people who annoyed us largely not universe, not saying 100 percent, but largely understood through having to organize and do boring things in, from their chapter to lobbying, knew that was like, it was, that was a complete waste of time. And it was really fascinating to me. That was like the inoculation by being in DSA, whether you're in social majority or even like a self-proclaimed more Marxist group was like, that was against the force of the vote. And DSA came out against force of the vote. So that was like a really interesting. So I want to pause there just to say like, that was a valuable reason to have that you need DSA because it can also inoculate people from like, terrible politics um that are ostensibly left that are but really are not are right in essence um to use terms from the past so on the caucus question i think what i always describe as like during my time when i first joined dsa that there were there were caucuses but there were and Jarak was alluding to this about the minority who was against realignment but there were broadly three groupings and i used to always say they kind of fit around magazines for whatever reason and I was always the best. There was like dissent, which would have been like, I put would put myself in that, would have been like left social Democrats, people who would have been more sympathetic to Michael Harrington or recruited by him. New politics were the people who had probably come out of the Trotskyist movement in some way or other, especially the, in the international socialists, but who didn't necessarily subscribe to the politics we associate with solidarity, the organization or the ISO, but were the people who would kind of be like Democrats icky <laughs> to like bastardize their politics a little bit. And the religious socialists, uh, people like Maxine Phillips, who I love, who, you know, obviously was entered in dissent, but there, there was a, there was a, what always made DSA unique. And I say this was a Jewish atheist, but I always appreciated was like largely Christian, but not only Christian people who, you know, were socialists because they believed that was, they were, that was what, that was God's work to do. And I always really respected that. And I always loved that about DSA that, we all came together. There wasn't, we weren't, and why, it's like why Cardinal West was a member, is a member of DSA. He said explicitly because it was a place you could be a Christian, you know, and be a socialist. And I think that was wonderful. But those weren't, they weren't contesting for power because there was no power to contest. The elections were largely uncontested. Um, people were doing it out of labor, complete, not that people weren't doing a labor love now, but it was so unsexy <laughs> to do that you weren't fighting over things and that factions like or what we call caucuses come out because when an organization grows there's just asymmetries of information you know i just think it's also important just to remember like who to run for delegate is over i'm very active in dsa i don't know everyone who's running for delegate i rely on my caucus to tell me and the other caucus who i like <laughs> to tell me who to vote for because i don't i can't pass because like now dsa is also for people who are maybe listening who remember the old dsa we used to have like conventions of a hundred maybe even less people. Now it's a thousand delegates. It's just not humanly possible for people who probably aren't staff, like even the staff to know who's running. So you, these caucuses get created, you know, because you have to do internal politics. And that's a tension, Dick, too, where it's like, I would love to, and I'm sure Christian too, would love to just be doing social movement work. But DSA can't function somewhat. It's like, do you view the caucuses as necessarily evil? I think that's a f actually a very fair way to look at them sometimes where they provide information to people because there are people who would take the DSA in a direction that I think none of us would want here, <laughs> you know, and that caucuses are also good because they do provide ways for people to organize and articulate to the outside world the views that aren't just DSA, that aren't just the official line in DSA. And that's good and bad. And I think that's reflected in the working groups and that a lot of tensions come up 
publicly around PR or statements that don't actually come from the national organization. If you go to the national organization website, there's actually not a lot of statements. It's like usually statements from like the international committee, a caucus, a chapter. Those are the ones that cause, I'll use a more neutral term, that cause them the get the most hype and, and spark the discourse. I, it's hard to know what the role of, so I, I think there's, I view, I tend to both vacillate between caucuses are necessary evils, caucuses are good, I never, and caucuses are great, or caucuses shouldn't, don't, shouldn't exist. And so you have like different caucuses. I mean, like, uh, so there's North Star, which is the one that I didn't join, but represents a lot of people who are close to, were close to me are people I looked up to uh, when I first joined DSA. There's Socialist Majority, which um, I'm in, which I definitely view as like the, a Democrat. <laughs> it's kind of like a Democratic Socialist Caucus in DSA <laughs> um, in its own way. And there's a smattering of other caucuses who I don't want to be unfair to them, but I would say like kind of represent either like people who are doing kind of XISO, ex-solidarity people in certain formations, people who identify broadly with communism with a small C, which I always think a lot of us would find interesting <laughs> that they're in a group called DSA, but it also speaks to like how big DSA is to um, just other formations that, you know, that are also people who I think would probably be close to SMC's politics, but are prioritizing uh, different projects, like people who come out of like the Green New Deal network, um, nothing. And so people also have their own things. So, so these caucuses play a real role in especially around conventions, and they play less of a role, I think, day to day in the vast majority of members lives. But it reminds me, I think, of when I went to Bowdoin, like my college, Bowdoin had gone from like 100% fraternity life to 30% fraternity life before they were banned. And But they said one of the reasons they were banned was because that 30% is still enough of a critical mass to dominate the social life of the other 70% of people who aren't in it. And so I think caucuses have an outside influence because just by the nature of being organized institutions in DSA, even though they represent a very, probably 1% of the, the membership, maybe at most, are, you know, are in in caucuses. That means policy 101. The first people to, to form a caucus win. I mean, it's, or to like trade votes. It's, I get it. I think you articulated that very well, the, the sort of ne necessary evil to maybe also good. Uh, I think that would describe where I'm at as well. And you're absolutely right. Like the stakes were just much lower passing resolutions in 1996 than they are, you know, directing actual resources, the real resources that the organization has now, um, which just wasn't true in the period of abeyance, you could say, that I was active in. So I want to wrap up and give you guys a chance to give closing thoughts. If you have questions for us or challenges, things you would like the listeners to just know, um, I think both Dick and I really had uh, a really great time uh, in this conversation and really appreciate both you taking the time and also I'll say, you know, the thoughtfulness and that both of you have hit issues of kind of humility and long-sightedness and openness and, you know, stochasticity, as we'd say. Um, I really appreciate and hadn't heard in a while. And I don't mean humility on a personal level. Neither of you need to be like humble personally, but intellectually and ideologically of like, we, we haven't gotten everything figured out and we're figuring it out. Um, I really appreciate it. So, I agree. I love that. I love that particular attitude that, that Christian is expressing. I've got many questions. That's the only way people on the left can really get anywhere is to keep the questions going, not to think they have the answers there. 
that's that's when danger begins, yeah. I think. But but yeah, let's get some. We I don't know how we're going to get this to a, a workable length, but but maybe we would just go with this uh, long story that we've been telling today. So go ahead, guys, with your final wrap up sermons. I guess I could I can go first. Yeah, I mean, I, I one definitely super appreciate uh, both again the invitation and and also this conversation. I think one thing that's always super important and especially for myself as I consider myself an organizer first and foremost is like talking to new people as much as possible, right? Making sure that you never sort of like let the the crises of the world harden you and harden your ability to relate to other people and and to really see seek out the fullness of people's humanity. Um, I think that's like an impulse that's really easy, particularly on the left, because we we have a tendency to be cynical sometimes. I think there's, you know, the things that we're fighting for are not easy by any means. And it's easy to devolve into blaming people for, for what their political views are, for what the situations that they're in. But I think for me, it was clear once I had a better understanding of the systems, how often people uh, were making choices largely from choices that were made for them. And it really helped me to try to see like, you know, there's going to be, and, you know, maybe some of my, (laughs) my political opponents would disagree. But for me, like, I know that I'm committed to, to, you know, DSA as a political organization for as long as it uh, is the largest socialist organization in the country. If, if it's something else, you know, pops up that's bigger, then we'll see. But I think that also means having sort of the the temperance and the the patience to know that I will be having a lot of these arguments and frustrations and stress with the same people for decades. Hopefully that's like the, the bright side, right? Is like, I'm 34. I hope that I have, you know, at least a solid uh, you know, four or five decades left in me to to devote myself to this project in whatever way that looks like. And I think the main takeaway for me is just like remembering that these are moments where fear is easy and hope is hard. And I think really making sure that we're living out our values in a way that makes hope enticing, makes uh, wanting to fight for a better world something a lot more doable and attainable and so even something small starting off small I think is is really big for people so you know I hope that anyone listening just sort of has a takeaway of like showing up for one thing whatever that one thing is um, it's enough because there's a lot of folks who are just sort of hiding behind their fear and I stand by the fact there's more of us than there are of them and and we can win the world that we want um, if we're willing to act for it if we're willing to fight for it right on David yeah, it's a hard act to follow. Um, I will yeah. also do say, but I will, in the spirit of that, I'll say join DSA if you're not <laughs> you're listening and haven't joined it yet. But I think what I'll talk about is a little different. I'll reflect on something I wrote that I never published, which is a reflect where reflecting on how DSA has changed in the past uh, ten to twelve years, and I noticed that when the Pro Act was being pushed, that DSA, the organization, actually played a real role in what the unions had organized around civic society groups to, you know, push this legislation when like the, uh, about a dozen years ago, that was jobs of justice role. And I think and why that realignment happened <laughs> to use a belabor word you've been using is an interesting thing that I don't have a complete answer to, but it's to me, it's a, that's one example of 
how politics has changed and how DSA is playing a more central role in certain things. And the other example I give too is like, you know, was a, is the international work, which we didn't really get into, which I think would be, I would encourage the show to maybe consider doing another episode on like DSA's, how DSA's international work has shifted for better or for worse is, but one of the most positive elements I'll leave on was like DSA sent me uh, to observe the second round of the Chilean presidential election in 2021. And one thing I came back with was a relation. I met one of the, the Starbucks, former Starbucks union president who then has been elected to Congress. And he did a talk with other Starbucks workers in the States. And it was interesting that DSA was actually the, the connector of this, not like a union, not uh, another global NGO. And like, so it's like, there's still potential. That's why I say there's still potential for DSA to do tremendous good in this international and global solidarity, especially, and that's a historic role that Dirac and I remember really bringing kind of international solidarity and those stories to American audiences. And I, I think that I would really hope that it's something that we, people also who are getting involved in DSA would want to push a good progressive vision of that kind of labor and worker global solidarity. Um, and so I really want to leave people with that about how uh, in, in the, the changing role of DSA and in the future is still really unwritten. All right. I like, we're going to end on that clash reference. I love it. Um, thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, get out there and uh, let's do the work. Wonderful to meet you guys and uh, good luck. And we'll stay in we touch. Shall. Now, I, I definitely won't qu- won't leave DSA. Okay. Thank I, you. I have a bunch of friends. <laughs> I, a few of my friends left and I was like, I'll just stick around. But you guys are like, make me feel a lot better. You about should it. Stay. Just, all right. All right. All right. Well, well um, I've pay- faithfully paid those paper dues all these I years. I respect that. For- <laughs> yeah. I but do. You, yeah. Uh, even 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 if you have to stay out of spite, mm-hmm. I, I fully plan to both outlive both my enemies and my opponents. Oh, spite <laughs> is spite is a fuel for good social change. Sometimes, absolutely cool. Thanks a lot. Good luck. Thanks for your work. Thanks for everything. So that was uh, episode twenty five of Talking Strategy Making History. Thanks for listening to the very end, and hope we got some good thoughts and reflections and understandings from what we've been talking about tonight we'd love to get your feedback we'd love to have you share awareness of this podcast with people who might benefit from knowing about it we'd love to have your support patreon.com tsmh come back next time for more of what we're trying to do here on talking strategy making history We will sing one song of the meek and humble slave, the horny and its son of the soil. He's toiling hard from the cradle to the grave, but his master reaps the profits from his toil. Then we'll sing one song of the greedy master class, their vagrants in broadcloth and deep. They live by robbing the ever-toiling mass. Human blood they spill to satisfy their greed. 
your might. Then we'll say.